And I wanna, I'm going to ask the question and answer it today is, what's the point of calling Jesus king? Uh, why was he a king? Why did God arrange salvation this way? Why was it God's plan for Jesus to be a king, not just a savior, but actually the king? Um, so John 12, look at verses 12 to 16. This is John's version of the triumphal entry, and we call it Palm Sunday, but I like calling it the triumphal entry because Jesus rides in, for us, a very unusual picture, a mighty king riding on a, on a donkey. That does, seems kind of counterintuitive, uh, but that was a sign of the king coming to his people in peace. If he was coming in war, he'd be riding a mighty steed carrying weapons. Uh, so here he comes and acclaimed, not by everybody. Mind you, don't misunderstand what the Bible teaches. Not by everybody, but by a fair number of people. And they were amazed at his miracles, uh, at his teaching. The people seemed to love him. And uh, by the end of the week, um, not everybody, but too many people were calling for his his death on the cross. So I'd like to read John's version. Very short. John 12, verse 12. The next day a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they had heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took branches of palm trees, and that's why it's called Palm Sunday, right? And went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel! Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now I'm going to finish with verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. So would it be heretical to say that we know more today than those disciples knew at that time then. No, it wouldn't be heretical because we know, we know almost all of it now because we have the scriptures. But when that was happening and taking place, they thought they knew what was going down, but they were totally wrong, weren't they? They, didn't, they really didn't understand much of anything. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be killed. On the third day, I'm going to rise again. They didn't know. And that, again, I've said this so many times, and some of you might say, will you stop saying that? No, um, I won't. Because when I grew up, Christianity was considered a myth. And that it was made up by these early Jewish men and women who had been infected by the Greek gods and goddesses, and therefore they, they created their own version, a Jewish version of a son of God. And that's what I've heard. That's what I thought. That's what I believed. And I thought it was more or less Aesop's fables, only religious. And then God saved me without my cooperation. And I began to read the Bible for myself. And I went, man, these people didn't even know what was happening. When it was happening, right before their very eyes. Even the miracles of Jesus, they still didn't get it right. Why? Because this is the truth. And they did not make it up. They did not fabricate it. So you can see it right there in verse 16. His disciples didn't understand these things until after he was glorified, after the resurrection. So in a sense, we know more than they did then. But of course, they got a pretty crash course uh, in learning all about that. So 
what's the point of calling Jesus king? And therefore, do you really know who he is? And I want to put it right out there and say that he's the king who died for his subjects. What do you think of that? He's the king. He's really the king. King of kings, Lord of lords, but the king that died for his own subjects. Now, in all the history of the world, the histories of monarchies, you don't find this. You find terrible kings, and you find kind kings, but you don't find kings who will die for the criminals of his kingdom. And that's what our king did, Jesus Christ. And that makes him no ordinary king. It makes him a glorious king. And for those of us who believe that Jesus Christ, our king, died for our sins, it makes him completely precious to us, and we're ready to give our lives to him, and we're ready to die for him when the time comes. Amen? If my king would die for me, a criminal, then I'm ready, with his grace, to give my life up to him if that time comes for me, as it has come to so many throughout history. So he is the promised Messiah. And don't misunderstand Messiah either. Messiah was a title for the king of Israel. The word Messiah comes from the verb to anoint. And they would anoint kings when they became king by God's appointment. And then they would also anoint priests. But we're talking about kings. So Messiah, the anointed one, became a title for the king of Israel. And all through the Old Testament, there was this prediction of a coming Messiah. And we read about that uh, in Psalm 2. So the Messiah was the great king promised in the Old Testament. And when I say great king, what I mean is he would be the king, the final king for all of Israel. And he would make everything wrong right, and he would put Israel back on the map, and even better than in the golden ages of King David and King Solomon. That's what they thought. That's what they believed. And in a sense, they were right, but in very important sense, they were wrong. They did not see it coming that the king would die for his subjects. So what I like to do, and I, I just have loved this ever since I became a Christian, is to look, and, to look at Jesus and look at the different ways Jesus is spoken about in the Bible. Do you know that it seems there's almost countless titles and names for Jesus Christ in the Bible? He is so great. He's so wonderful, so important, so significant that one or two names and titles don't do him justice. But the Bible is filled with all kinds of titles and names for our Lord, our King, Jesus the Messiah. So I want to take a look today and say Jesus was no ordinary king. So first of all, his coming was predicted over many centuries. Let me give you a for instance here. Go back to John 12 here. And if you look at verse 13, this is a quotation of Psalm 118 about the king coming. Do you know how many years before Jesus came that psalm was written? A thousand. So a thousand years before Jesus came, it talked about his coming as king. And then the next one is in verse 15. And this is uh, a quotation that primarily comes from Zechariah, but also is affected by Isaiah. And Isaiah talked about the coming of king, you know, coming of the king. Do you know how many years before Jesus came? 800. So a thousand years, the psalmist. 800 years, 
Isaiah, the great gospel prophet of the Old Testament, and then Zechariah, who spoke so precisely. Look at verse 15. Fear not, daughter of Israel. Behold, your king is coming. He describes his coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. What an express description. What a precise historical prediction. And when was Zechariah's time? He lived about 500 years before Christ came. So 1,000 years before, 800 years before, 500 years before, all through the centuries, God, who is in control of history, our creator, the sovereign Lord over all, was saying, my son is coming, and I'm going to tell my prophets, and they're going to write about him, and then he's going to come. And he did on that fateful day when he was born of the virgin. That's the next thing I want to say. His coming was predicted over many centuries, but secondly, Jesus was born of a virgin. And you know what that means, don't you? You know what it means. He was born both of a natural birth and a supernatural birth. You see it? Born of a virgin. There was really a woman. There was really a baby, and that baby was really born, and yet both a supernatural and a natural birth in one person. No ordinary king is this. Amen? And then he did not look like a king. Read the Gospels. Oh, Christian, if any Christians are here today and you've never read at least one Gospel all the way through, what is your problem? Read the Gospels. And as you do, say, if I was going to make up a Gospel, would I make it up like this? What did Jesus say as he was, as he was living his life? Was he sitting on a throne? No. Did he say he had a place to live? No. Remember what he said? Foxes have holes and um, birds have nests, but the Son of Man doesn't have any place to even lay his head. What kind of a king is this? Not much of a king to all outward appearance, and yet he was the king. He didn't occupy a throne. He didn't have a home. Instead, what did he do? He traveled about. Everywhere he traveled about. And lots of times he depended on somebody offering, hey, you want to stay here? And when he didn't, he had to sleep outside. Jesus did not look like a king. So he's no ordinary king. Another thing is, he did unheard of miracles. So there's that natural and supernatural reality about Jesus. He did unheard of miracles. He could be called the great physician. Now, kings can have a lot of power, but there aren't many kings that are also great physicians. But Jesus could speak a word and make somebody better. He didn't even have to be beside them. Jesus could be miles away, and a person could be healed from miles away. The great physician. I wish I had a doctor like that. I've I've been sick for almost a week or two now, and I can't taste my food. I can't taste my food. And you don't, if you don't know me, you don't know. That's like really bad. So we went out for our anniversary, and me, you know, I like crab cakes. I couldn't taste. I couldn't taste it at all. I'm praying that God will give me back my sense of taste. Please, Lord. Jesus never met a disease he couldn't cure. So he can can take care of me. I know that. And then, look at this. This king ended up dying on a cross. Now, this is not new information for you, but it's amazing for us to stop and think about it again and be reminded our king died on a cross, and they only put the worst filth on crosses, at least in their minds, 
And he died on the cross for your sins and my sins so that we would not die for our sins but live forever with his complete forgiveness. This is no ordinary, no ordinary king. But natural, here's the supernatural. On the third day, what happened? Jesus Christ rose again without the possibility of ever dying again. When he was raised from the dead on the third day, it wasn't just what they call a resuscitation. That body didn't come back. He was glorified. He received a new body instantaneously that was no longer subject to death, aging or any of that. And what's great about that is if you believe in Jesus, when the resurrection takes place, you're going to get a body like that. And some of you, you're having problems with the bodies you're in right now. So look forward to this body, which will never give you another ache or pain ever again. No glasses. Probably be able to taste your food. Now, I want to go a little deeper now. Because I've talked about Jesus being a king, no ordinary king, unique. But something not only natural, but supernatural about him. So here's where I want to go with this. This king was a divine person. Now listen carefully here. This is, this is rock-solid, deep theology that you and I need to hold. We need to know it. And when I say that, don't shut your ears off. Listen even more. Say, Lord, I want to hear this. I need to know this. Jesus, our king, was a divine person. Before he was Jesus in his human nature walking around on earth. He already existed. He has never not existed. He is the Son of God. That divine a person, the Son of God with the Father and the Holy Spirit, that's who Jesus is. That divine person was born of a virgin. You say, how could that be? Don't ask me. Ask him. How do I know? How can you know? The Bible says it. And, and, and Jesus' life confirms it, because who is like him? And yet, we read these mysteries that before Jesus was held in his mother's arms, he was the divine person, the Son of God, one God with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And that blows your mind. And if your God doesn't blow your mind, you don't have God. If you have a God that you've got tamed and controlled, and you can, you've got them all figured out, See you later, man. You don't have God. Our God is a God that blows out the categories of our mind. Not that it's dumb stuff that, that you have to believe, even though it doesn't make sense. It, it transcends the bounds and categories of which our finite minds are capable. This is the infinite, glorious God. And he's given us his word. And he's given us his son so that we can see these things and read these things. And even when I have to stop and say, I don't know what God is doing here, but he's God. I don't understand how this works, but he's God. That's okay. You're not playing dumb. You're not saying, I don't care. I just believe it. You're acknowledging what you really can't fully comprehend, at least not yet. Who knows what we'll be able to comprehend in our new bodies and our perfectly operating minds when the time comes. So before he was born of a virgin, he was the son of God, one God with the Father and the Holy Spirit. So he is an eternal person. Now there should be some evidence of that in what he says in the Bible. There should be some evidence that he knew he was a divine person in the Bible. Now look at John chapter 8 and tell me how many of you could say this 
and, and we'd have to believe you. John chapter 8, verse 51. Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. I could tell you that all day long, and all you'd have to do is laugh, and after I've insisted on it, get mad at me and throw me out of the, out of the building. But Jesus says, whoever keeps my word shall never see death. If you believe in Jesus and start following him as your Lord and Savior, you will never die. That's what it says. You won't see death. When your body dies, that's your body. Your spirit will not suffer death because you have eternal life. Isn't that amazing? Now, you know what the Jews said, verse 52, now we know that you have a demon. <laughs> they didn't believe him. There's a lot of people today that don't believe in Jesus. Right? I mean, I think you probably work with a few of them. You probably have them in your families, your relatives. And I know what happens when, when, when your name comes up in a discussion, one of their eyebrows goes up. I got the wrong one up, but anyhow. Yeah, uh, yeah, we know about him. And then look at verse 58. Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you before Abraham was, I am. This is what got him killed, by the way. I mean, they could put up with a lot, but this was it. Because you know who, who said, who used that name, I am, in the Bible before Jesus? Yeah, God did. And here's a man standing before them, looks pretty much like any other human being. Yeah, he's done some miracles, but maybe he did it by magic and sorcery. But you, you said what? Before Abraham was. Now, wait a minute. That's pretty astonishing, too. Before Abraham, who lived about 1850 B.C., Jesus says, I, I am. And then to call himself, I am. He doesn't say, I existed before Abraham. He says way more than that, doesn't he? He says, before Abraham existed, I'm God. And I have been God. Without beginning, without end, without change, God the I am. Um, what happens in verse 59? They took up stones. They were going to kill him. This was execution by stoning. But that wasn't, that wasn't God's plan, was it? It was execution by the cross. Now, why? Why did it have to be a cross? The Old Testament says that anybody who's nailed, who's hung up and nailed and put to death, is under the curse of God. Now, would you make it up that the hero of the story dies under God's curse? Would you make that up? If you were making up a story about a great Jewish hero, a great king, would you have him die on a cross? I don't think I would. And if you say you would, it's because you're just, you're just messing with my head. You wouldn't. And you see, he was fulfilling another part of the prophecy, that God would come himself and would die on the cross for our sins. And it had to be a natural and a supernatural person because all the natural persons by themselves, where do we come from? Adam. So we've all fallen. We've all been infected by sin. We can't save ourselves, and I can't save you. I got my own sins to pay for. But a supernatural person comes into the world, the, the eternal Son of God. He's the king, and he can die for us because he's without sin. He's a perfect sacrifice, and he can pay for our sins. 
and bury our sins in the tomb and leave them there and rise again so that you and I can live free from not only the taint and the guilt of sin, but also the power of sin. And we can start living for Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us, that we might stop living for ourselves and start living for him. Isn't that great? So there he is, I am. So the next time somebody shows up and says, oh, Jesus is not God, you've got a verse right there. So the Son of God is an eternal person, and I ask you the question, do you want to live forever? I do. I want to live forever. Well, I'm putting my faith in Jesus Christ. He's an eternal person. He's my king, and he died for me, his criminal subject, so that I could live with him forever and ever and ever. That's our Lord Jesus Christ. No ordinary king. And then the Bible says that this king is going to put an end to all evil. Did you know that? Now let's look at the last book of the Bible, Revelation 19. Our king takes sin seriously. Did you hear that? Our king, that is God, takes sin seriously. He doesn't wink his eye and say, oh, you're just human. Nobody's perfect. He doesn't say that. I hear a lot of human beings say that, but he doesn't. He takes sin so seriously that he came to our rescue and he suffered the penalty for our sins in our place. But there are going to be people who say, I don't believe that. I don't want to hear that. I don't, I don't go with that. It's, that's all a bunch of malarkey. That's humbug, whatever words they use. Look at this. In Revelation 19, verse 11. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. This is not a donkey. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in, him was, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Jesus makes war on evil. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. And if you believe in Jesus, you know that name now too. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. Remember Psalm 2? And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's our king. This glorious person died for our sins. You can't pay for your sins without paying for them forever. You can't pay for somebody else. You might love somebody desperately. Oh, I wish, I wish so-and-so would just change their life, turn, turn their life around. You can't do it, but he can. And unfortunately, all over the world, people think that by their works, they save themselves. If I could just change this and do this, not do that, be a new... The only way God will accept you is if you believe in Jesus Christ. You can be accepted to, acceptable to God in no other way than the Lord Jesus Christ. And here, now, you know, a lot of times people say, I don't like all that wrath in the Bible. Well, I'm going to tell you something. I think it's good. I believe it's good. Because the wrath is always against what it should be against, and that's evil and evildoers. God's wrath is never against what it ought never to be against. His wrath is always just and righteous. So look what happens here in verse 17. 
Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, in other words, get your attention, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth. Now, the beast is a supernatural uh, figure in the book of Revelation who is um, an agent of Satan who works in the kings and kingdoms of the world to try to wipe out Christianity. So he says, uh, he's, I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword, which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. You know what this is? A graphic depiction of the end of all evil. Our king comes back in a mighty victory. He confronts all the evil that has done such ruinous, hatred, venomous, horrors and atrocities in this world, and he destroys them, vanquishes them, and he puts them out forever. They're done. They'll never come back. They'll never harm the new creation, the new heaven and the new earth. And that's what he talks about uh, in chapter 21. So that's where we'll stop there for today on that. So the most amazing and astounding fact about this king is that this king is really the king, but he humbled himself to die for you and for me and to pay for our sins. When Meredith was in college, she spent a semester in London, my daughter Meredith. She studied for a semester in London. And I love my girls, and I desperately wanted to go to see her for a little while while she was there. Plus, I wanted to see London. So I was driving in the car. I think I was going to Crozier to visit somebody. I forget exactly what happened. But on the radio, British Airways advertised this rock-bottom price for a flight to... London. So I, as soon as I got home, I said, Nancy, let's go to London. She looked at me like a couple heads. I said, no, British Airways. And I told her what the price was. I don't think she believed me. It was such a low price. So Nancy and I and Rachel, we flew to London. And we, we, we stayed with Meredith for a week there. I think it was about a week or so. When we were there, we did a bit of touring. And one of the places that sticks in my mind is where King Henry VIII lived. Remember that song? Some of you old heads remember that song. Was that the monkeys? Herman's Hermits, yeah. All right. And Henry VIII, he's, he's kind of a, one of the most famous and infamous kings in all of history. So, and I won't get to all his things, but he had this remarkable palace, this huge place. And we went into this hallway. Now, when I say hallway, don't think even of the narthex. This hallway, we could put most of our houses in this hallway somewhere. But there, it was like the narrowest, longest uh, room uh, in the palace. And it was this long, long highway with very high ceilings. And the tour guide said uh, that everybody who wanted to talk to the king, this is where they came. And they hoped that they might get a chance to talk to the king. And what, what that means is that the two most important people in King Henry VIII's time was King Henry VIII 
and anybody that could get you in to see him. Because the king could take care of any matter, any problem, any situation. If you needed justice, the king would get it for you. If you needed mercy, if the king heard you and said, I'll give you mercy, you got mercy. But only the king could do it, and not many people got in to see the king. So the two most important people in the kingdom, King Henry VIII, and the man, and only man, that could get you in to see him. Now, if a woman could get you in there, but she'd have to do it through a man. It's really a man's, a man's uh, uh, kingdom at that time, of course. The king and the person who get, could get you in to see him. Does that remind you of Jesus? Who's both the king, and he's the only one who can get us into the presence of God. He's one and the same. He's the king, and he's the priest, and he's the sacrifice. So that by believing in Jesus, you are now in the presence of the king. Every time you pray, your whole life as you live, you're in the presence of the king. He said, I am the way. Notice I am again. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Is Jesus going to be there with you on the day that you die? Is Jesus going to be there with you on the day when he comes back in wrath to judge the world? Do you have that assurance, that confidence? Jesus says, come. Trust in me. Believe in me. And if you've come to Jesus, have all the confidence, not in yourself, but in the king. No ordinary king. The king who gave up his life for his own criminal subjects. Do you believe in Jesus? then you have the presence of God, you have the approval of God, you have the acceptance of God, and there's no other way. What will happen to you on the day that you die and meet God? Ponder it and call upon the name of the Lord Jesus if you don't have assurance of God's commendation, God's approval, God's acceptance of you. Let's pray. Father, let these words be true to your word and by the power of your Holy Spirit minister to each and every one of us here today and make us all confident in you as our king and that you gave your life for us. And Lord, anybody that's still here today holding off, holding back, Holy Spirit, come upon them in mighty power and compel them to come to your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name I pray, amen.